1: Now get 0% APR or up to $1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.
3: The premier baseball show in Chicago. Hit and run with Matt Spiegel.
4: Yeah, I've thought about this a lot and I've talked to a lot of people about it. I think the key thing to understand is that we're getting a much better understanding of how the seams of a baseball interact with the air as it moves to the plate. And a byproduct of that is the sweeping slider. There's a particular grip that guys use. It's known as the two seam sweeper grip. It's kind of an interesting grip that guys have added and what it allows you to do is cue curveball out of hand and create lateral break. I think that is the base summary. The craziest thing is that you have, like, 12 guys in this organization who've added this pitch as of a month or two ago.
3: 12 guys in the organization have added the sweeper in the last month? What the hell's going on here? What in the wide wild world of sports is going on here? Let's find out. It's Matt Spiegel, and it is hit and run. And this is the baseball show on 670. The score on Sunday mornings inside the clubhouse was uh, was preempted yesterday in order to do bump and run. And David Haw did two hours of bump and run talking about the big bears trade. And Lord knows this radio station will get back to that. And I will be a big part of it tomorrow with Parkinson Spiegel. Because it's awesomely exciting. But damn it, it's baseball season. Done a lot of world baseball classics so far today. Talked um, some White Sox with Chuck Garfine, which was fun an hour ago. Let's talk some Cubs and more with Lance Brasdowski from the Marquee Sports Network. And Lance, um, your background is intriguing and should be known to people. Because by now we've seen you on Marquee talking uh, anything, mm-hmm. f- frankly. Uh, Cubs, uh players interviewing people, middle of the game. I saw you on a really interesting gambling cast uh, with, who was it? Oh, yeah, it was with me and Danny yeah. Parkins uh, on the app last year. and Maybe we'll see each other there again, but you can do just about anything. But I love when you talk pitching, and you're on here to do that, among other things, on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline, Circa Resort and Casino Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. You could talk grips and pitch design and finger placement and everything like that. Why? Why can you talk about that stuff? Where'd you learn about that stuff?
4: From a lot of people who are much smarter than me. (laughs) Um, I think that my strength has become talking to people who understand things at a higher level than I think I'll ever be able to understand and trying to consolidate that information down and communicate it back to a general fan or someone who's interested in baseball um, who maybe wants to know more or just enjoys kind of hearing some of the nuance and some of the advanced things going on. But yeah, it's a lot of talking to people who are really smart, asking good questions. And I've been really, really grateful enough to have worked at places that have supported that. I worked at driveline baseball for a little bit as like a remote video editor. So that was obviously a company that I think people are starting to understand more when you're hearing, you know, guys like Tim Anderson on the white Sox on the South side, going to driveline and working with driveline, they become kind of a household name, so that's kind of the, the crux of my information, really, is that it's um, it's the experience I've had and the people i talked to.
3: Yeah, you know, last week on this show, I had a chance to talk to Daniel Moscos and really— Yeah, I love Dan. —really, really enjoyed it and, um, and I think educated a lot of people on some stuff. So I don't want to cover some of the same ground, but, sure. but what strikes me as similar, it's funny, is like the real strength of an organization— can be if handled correctly having the people to communicate about this stuff to players and that so as you're saying that's your that's your niche uh, one of your niches that you've carved out over at marquee and in the business it's the same thing it's reams and reams and pages and pages of complex information Um, how do you figure out which stuff is actually useful and which is not is the question
4: Trial and error uh, yeah. It's going to be my guess there. I definitely, if anyone has seen my content early on in what I, is now becoming a bit of a career in this space, it was really complex and I, I went really deep. And I, I have to give credit to Marquis for allowing me to do that, especially on a pretty high-profile network in one of the biggest markets in the country. Um, failing and listening to myself back and understanding what I don't even maybe understand what I'm saying it, back to myself watching video, um, that is when you start to understand, like, how much does the viewer actually need to know like, how specific do I need to get here? Yeah. Or is there a way I could step back and consolidate and really get the point across and push it towards, like, the grander picture, the macro picture of, like, okay, why does this matter? Like, that's the question you ask. I ask the most, right? It's just why. Like, okay, they're using this script. Why are they using this script? Oh, because it allows you to do that. So, okay, well, why do they want it in the repertoire? Like, keep following up with the why allows you to kind of consolidate and figure out, okay, at the end of the day, like, what is the, the first principle issue here? Like, what is the first principle thinking of this problem? Does it matter? Is that something that I think is important? Is it too complex? You know, are there different angles to it? You know, so I think the way I've kind of thought about everything that I do is like, I'm going to present you with another side of things. Like if maybe, especially communicating some of the analytics, right? I think people are generally hate that term analytics. And, or maybe someone resistant to hearing about why this guy got pulled with two outs in the fourth, when he's at 70 pitches, but he's going through the lineup a third time, you know, that's a pretty standard one that everyone's like, why are they pulling this guy? That's incredible. You let him go another." two innings or something like that. Like, I'm, I'm here to just present you with another side of the story. Whether you want to believe me or not, that's totally up to you. I'm not here to conv- tell you that this is wrong, that your thinking is wrong. I'm here to present another side of the story and then get out and let you decide. And maybe down the road, you know, two years from now, you're like, hey, I remember that kid saying something about this and, you know, I'm kind of coming around on it. That's probably the goal for me, right? It's like, I don't need to convince you in the moment, but if I could at least get that seed planted in your brain, maybe there'll be some benefit to it.
3: Lance Brozdowski from Marquee Sports Network is here with us on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. All right, so the sweeper slider, Lance, is designed to go a little bit more right to left as it comes out the arm of a righty and maybe get some more swings and misses. Is that a fair
4: shorthand? That's a great shorthand. Yeah, that guy who uh, you intro this segment with said it pretty smartly, which was my hit on the broadcast the other day on the spring training broadcast. Okay, good. With the Reds with Alex. But uh, right. yeah, that's that's the idea. It's right to left.
3: Okay. Um, and then and then tell us, tell fans the pitchers who have been taught this and are trying to learn it over the past month or so. And I'm sure some of them are going to be very low prospects that we won't see, but there's some on the big league level too. Rattle off some names if you would.
4: I, I almost need my full screen from that hit. I think I forgot some of them, but no, the two big ones are Jamison Tyone, the recent acquisition, obviously as a free agent came from the Yankees organization and Michael Fulmer who was signed more so recently. Um, he's been with the twins and the Tigers in his career. Those I think are the two guys that if you're watching a Cubs game this summer and you see something moving and breaking across the plate that it looks a little bigger than maybe they've thrown in the past and generates a swing and miss. Those are the guys that are throwing the sweeper that I think are the most well-known title an interesting one because the Yankees organization has been pretty in on this pitch. Um, They have, I think the second highest slider percent usage throughout the minor leagues only to the Mariners who are number one, they throw this pitch a ton. They love it. You see, anytime you ever jump over and watch a Yankee game, you'll see a ton of those relievers in the back end, clay Holmes, et cetera, throwing this kind of pitch. And, um, they, you know, I, it's interesting because Tyone is a guy who came from that organization. And everyone's like, wow, the Cubs taught him a sweeper. The Yankees didn't, you know, like that seems insane. But I mm. think it was more a matter of him not being healthy for the most part and not being a part, not being something that they got to, right? Like, this isn't accelerating things like this generally take time. This is why I think, you know, you might ask why didn't the sweeper take off last year? It's like, well, you know, maybe they really didn't have the guys or have the aptitude or have the the interest in kind of bringing it into repertoires. And now we're starting to see it a lot more. So those are the two guys. Fulmer is an interesting one too, because this, he threw a slider like 60% of the time last year. yeah. And that, it seems to me like that was his pitch. So I think when he was side, everyone was like, ah, he throws this nasty slider. Can't wait to have it in the Cubs bullpen. And now what you're seeing is that they added a sweeper and changed that old slider to a slightly different pitch that has a little bit more depth now. So that pitch that he threw 60% of the time last year, and you could argue was the reason why they wanted Michael Fulmer is now a different pitch, right? He's throwing the sweeper, which is the bigger lateral slider, and then he has a slightly different kind of more cuttery slider. They might both be called slider. We'll kind of see sliders, excuse me, We'll kind of see how pitch classification does with them, but those I think are the two guys that are most important that are throwing this pitch.
3: Yeah, you know it's interesting because I saw that about Fulmer, who reinvented himself as a reliever, kind of out of necessity, and yes, leaned on the slider so much. And I thought, well, that 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 was the light bulb, and now yeah, here right. he and, and now here he is being taught a different one. So 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 they'll change it up because so often, like uh, a, a change for a guy in a new organization is like, hey, stop throwing that pitch; it stinks you know yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. like that that kind of thing like it, history is littered whether it's Garrett Cole giving up the two seamers as soon as he got to yep. Houston or you know uh, or or or, or uh, other other stuff like that but it seems like the cubs want to go deeper on on pitch on pitch design um Marcus Stroman is not one of those guys, right? Stroman throws that slider that drops, that 12-6. to 6. I guess maybe he has another one um, that he we does, see a yeah. little bit. Uh, so it, it, is, he, is he open to all these conversations and the development of pitches, even though he was kind of a made guy when he got here?
4: Yeah, I think so. He actually does throw a version of the sweeper. I, you know, this is where it kind of maybe it's a little bit nuanced. But he, he throws the sweeper. So you could say a sweeper is pretty much any pitch that moves right to left that right-to-left if you're a right-handed pitcher, say about 10 inches horizontally. And that's kind of a nerd thing. Like, I I assume everyone doesn't have the baseball savant second screen up that shows you pitch movement, as I do, as you're watching games, you know. But I think the difference is that this particular grip and how quickly they're giving it to guys that allow them to unlock this pitch is a key. Wisniewski is another one that throws uh, a sweeper as well. But Wisneski and Strowman have slightly different grips than Tyone and Fulmer. Tyone and Fulmer are throwing this kind of two-seam grip that allows you to kind of cue curveball out of hand, create lateral break, as you heard in the intro, because of how the seams of the ball interact with the air around it. Whereas a guy like what's and a guy like Stroman, maybe have a slightly tweaked grips. Like if you ever see their grips online or see an interview with them where they talk about the grips, they're just slightly different. And they have a more natural slot because they're a little bit lower, a little bit lower three quarters that allows them to get around the ball and create that lateral break. Whereas the two seam sweeper grip, is a kind of almost like a cheat code to get that lateral movement. Mm. So Wisniewski has been throwing his for three years. You know, that's the key thing with Wisniewski. The thing that I think he, I think personally, he's the fifth starter. I would be stunned if he is not. I think he's arguably, I was talking the other day with some people. I think he could have a better season than any one of tying on steel and strum. And that's how good I think he is. Yeah. And the key I think he's that good is because he throws this sweeper slider but he's thrown it for three years, and his execution with that pitch is exceptional. And this is the wrinkle, right? You're learning a new pitch a month or two out from this season, you know? Like, how confident can you really be with that pitch in-game? A guy like Wisniewski. It's it for three years. Like, I'm very confident that he will be able to execute that pitch continually start over start. Whereas a guy like Tyon... I wouldn't be stunned if there's a starter too, where he just scraps the pitch. And then you hear in a post-game interview, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. I didn't have my feel for it. Whereas Wisniewski will have the feel for the pitch more times than not. Yeah. And, and the same they, with Stroman, like Stromman's thrown that pitch for a while too. Yeah.
3: And, and, and I love the way Wisniewski talks about his work and how he's a, it's such a, such a harsh critic of himself and also trying to keep things in perspective. I, I agree very, very uh, high on that kid. Um, let's switch to position players for a second, since you've been out there sure. and you've seen so much, um, You know, David Bodie and Edwin Rios and Christopher Morrell and Zach McKinstry. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess we could throw Nick Madrigal in there, too. Um, Of the five of those, how many of those really have a shot to make this team? And as I say those, I'm realizing that my Matt Mervis opening day roster dream is basically (laughs) dead. Um, So but uh, of those five, you got a feel for which one of those guys make this team.
4: Yeah, it's a tough question. I'd say that I would generally on like roster decision stuff in construction, I generally defer to some of the beat writers. I think we have beat writers that do a really good job. If you just want me to purely guess the guy that jumps out to me is Edwin Rios. Um if I had to guess to answer your question, i would say maybe one to two of them have a shot, I think. Maybe another, but it's I, I think I lean towards like a Madrigal making it and a Rios making it is my guess right now. Well but why, why again, does Rios like,
3: why does Rios jump out at you? Tell me tell me why. Rios jump out
4: because I yeah, he, he had a really, really strong career with the Dodgers. Um, was like a huge OPS guy. He was, he was basically like a 40% better than league average guy as an offensive hitter purely. And I think that that is something that the team needs, especially with a guy like Suzuki. Are, we'll see how long he's out. Like, it seems like he's going to miss maybe the first couple weeks of the season or something like that. Obviously, we've been kind of keeping in touch with Ross and seeing how he's doing in his rehab and whether he's still tightness in the oblique and such. Rios, I think, slots in as a guy that actually gives this team offensive upside. Like this team is projected for seventy-seven and a half wins, right? That's a minus 110 depending on the sports, which sports book you look at. It's not great. You're probably going to get to like the 85-87 win mark to get into that third wild card spot based on what we saw last year with the, the Phillies getting and the Brewers being right behind them. Hmm. A guy like Rios I think gives you a little bit of offensive variance that you need. You, Suzuki was the key here, I thought. I thought Suzuki was a guy that could go up and put up 30 homers and be like a 30-40% better than league average hitter which would put him in a tier of like the top 20, 30 hitters in all of baseball. And I think that if you're trying to outperform projections, you need a guy to do something like that. So Rios, I think slots in as kind of your cheaper option to do so. Like he's a lefty. So maybe he doesn't really face a lot of left-handed pitchers, but yep. he could be like a strong side platoon guy that has an OPS well above the major league average. He's taken some really good hacks in the live VPs. I've saw, I've seen he took through smiley deep left, left. I don't think he'll necessarily be hitting lefties in the season, but mm-hmm. I think that the approach is strong. He's a guy that's been hampered by hamstring injuries for each of the last two seasons. I just don't think he's really got another chance, right? Like he's played, he's never played more than like 40 games at the major league level in his career. It's just, it's been a mix of injuries and such. And the underlying traits, when you look back to 19 and 20 and when he was with the Dodgers were fantastic and the approach is good. The power's good. I think there's a reasonable chance. He ends up being like a 20 to 30% better than the average hitter. And is just kind of the stalwart of this team. Him and Mancini are kind of my picks to, give the team some power upside that, that I think they really need to outperform projections.
3: Yeah. I think um, Mancini's looked, looked very good He's and look great and, yeah. and, and, and very comfortable. Um, one more on uh, position players before we go back to pitching for a yeah. final one. Um, you've got a, got a chance to talk to a lot of the young prospects. You talked yeah. to Kevin Alcantara. What is it? The cheetah or the Panther that, that the the, Jaguar the, see, I was so close. I was so close. Um, so, yeah, you, you talked to Alcantara. You've obviously seen Brennan Davis, who's at 100% this year, saw a little bit of Owen Casey. Like, tell, tell me one of those prospects that has jumped out to you and you're, you're, you're feeling good about.
4: Yeah, Owen Casey's the one that. I have some access to minor league batted ball data, which again, we're getting super nerdy on this. When you, when you bring me on, you know, you're bringing the nerd out. So oh, yeah. batted ball data is essentially just like you see it pop up on the screen. Our guy the homer. It's like, okay, it's 107 off the bat or something. Major league average homers like right around 104. So when you see this in a larger sample in the minor league, you can kind of parse out the data and understand how hard a guy is hitting the ball. Owen Casey's a guy that really jumps out when you look at these statistics. And again, he's maybe in a similar situation. We we're just talking about an Edwin Rios, who's maybe more of a platoon bat where he's not really facing a lot of lefties. Casey's another guy I think that maybe is in that window. I, he's not really sure-handed in the field. I think they're tr- still trying to figure out what position he ends up at. But he scorches the ball, and he's only 20 years old. It'll be his age 20 season. There's a really strong chance I think he starts at A Tennessee. I think if he performs well there, he can maybe even make a jump up to A. You know, he doesn't turn 21 until July. I, I just – I really like the combination – of batted ball profile. The approach to the plate isn't crazy. He walks a reasonable amount of the time, so can support like a striker rate right around 25%, a little bit higher. And he's only 20. And I think it may come down to him developing a little bit more. You see him in the World Baseball Classic right now. If you watch Team Canada, he's in there. He had a homer the other day. It's just a really loud bat. And I think that, you know, he may have gotten a little bit overlooked because I think a lot of people maybe look negatively on the U Jarvis trade in terms of the return we've gotten because he's pretty much the centerpiece right now of that return. Mm-hmm. There's not really anyone else, I think, in the mix of players they got back that is, has the highest probability of making some impact at the major league level. So if you see a guy like Owen Casey make it up and it ends up being kind of an Edwin Rios type Or, you know, maybe it's crazy to think about, but maybe they even use them as some kind of trade, but if they end up with so many left-handed hitters that they don't really know what to do with that are more DHs, I'm talking about guys like Matt Mervis and Evan Rios and Owen Casey, like three left-handed bats that probably are all maybe more first baseman than anything. Mm. It's interesting, but I love his bat. I think he hits the ball hard for a 20-year-old. He'll go up to double-A. You know, I've been really impressed with him. And Kevin Alcantara is another one where it's just the variance there is what you're looking for. Like, his levers are so long. That we're seeing guys <laughs> like O'Neal Cruz and Ellie De La Cruz is this shortstop prospect for the Reds. He's, he played some short against the Cubs at Sloan the other day. These guys are massive, and Alcon, 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 Alcontra fits into that same mold of like, this is what they look like, right? You know, oh, like, my God. Like, yeah, I, no, I,
3: I, I, I did a couple of games last year on the radio out, out there, Lance, is, as you know, and Alcontra made a couple of throws from right field. I'm like, oh, my God. that's it, it, Athletically and with that particular skill, there's just. There's there's so much to like. All right, last thing. Um, give me a, a young pitcher who you think might end up getting some saves this year for the Cubs that people have not thought about. Um, and I have I have one in mind, or people have not thought about enough. I have one in mind I want to ask you about, but I don't want to bait you. So so tell me somebody okay. in camp who could get some saves at some point this year.
4: I'll go with Jeremiah Estrada. Yeah. Um, that was my yeah, guy. I, was, I figured that's where you're going. I you was. All the question up there, a young guy getting saved, like they find Boxberger and Fulmer. It's but- just
3: that, that, that. <laughs> ever since, like, it was a pivotal moment in my life where I learned that. Oh, when they say the four seamer carries, they're just talking about the absence of drop. So it does look like beautiful. It, it, right, it, it does look like it rises, and like that's why we love it. and That's why it's so difficult. And then certain people, you watch them, and you're like, how the hell is he doing that? So yeah. that's Estrada to me, you know.
4: I, no, I agree with Estrada entirely. He's also a guy throwing the sweeper, right? Like, again, I, that hit I did qualify to the guys that just added the pitch. But there's other guys in the org that have had the pitch for more than a year. I think Estrada learned it early last season, if I remember correctly. Um, he's that 2 sting super grip, same grip that Tyon and a guy like Michael Fulmer use. He gets behind the ball really well. That's why he's able to create that rise, that absence of drop that you're talking about. This, it works incredibly well at the top of the zone. I also love, from Cubs Convention, uh, Hayden Wisniewski, and there was a panel of pitchers that were asked, if there was a pitch in the organization that you could add to your repertoire, whose would you take? And everyone was going to Kyle Hendricks changeup and some other, you know, the popular answers like, oh, Hendricks sinker, Hendricks change up. Wisniewski goes, I want Jeremiah Stratus fastball. And I was like, that is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer because that is the guy that looks at the data and understands that this pitch resists gravity by arguably, I think almost more than a couple pitchers in baseball. I think he's like probably inside the 95th percentile in terms of how much Hop, carry, ride—whatever you want to call it—that pitch has, and I think that could carry him. Right, the command is okay, and as a reliever in a leverage situation, I think you really only need okay command. You get the pitch in the zone a couple times, and it's going to be really hard to barrel. I think he's a guy that will not allow a lot of home runs; won't be prone to like blow up, so to speak. I, and he also throws a good slider. Like the slider is good, he gets behind it every now and then. i Was actually talking to him in the clubhouse the other day about. You know, him having to kind of correct that and get that pitch to move a little more laterally. Sometimes it kind of just spins and doesn't take off left to right. Yeah. Or right to left, excuse me. So if he could polish that up, I, I think that's just another weapon to have. But he's honestly a guy that I think could throw the fastball 50, 60 percent of the time and succeed in a leverage role. So I love him.
3: Lance, um, thanks for welcoming us into the warm nerd cave. Um, yeah, so, it's warm so, in here. <laughs> oh, it is. It's it's warm and it, and you're able to speak it and and, and I think some of us even understood it. Like it was exciting. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I hope some of us understood it. <laughs> Lance, thanks so much, man. Have a great day. Thanks, Matt. Oh, you got it. That's Lance Brzdowski from the Marquee Sports Network. Yeah, man. That, that, that Estrada fastball, I, I want to see it. That was, let, let's be honest, that was for you, Sean Sears. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. Thank I, you, you know, you know, you know. And I know that you know, I know you know. And I know that you know. That you know that I, but I think a lot of people do get stuff out of the, those kind of conversations. Whether it all seeps in or not, you understand why some people are thought of as darlings, and and what a coup it was to get Woznieski, and how much fun he could be to watch. Um, I've been doing my top thirty Chicago ballplayers of my thirty baseball seasons here in town, and I've got one Cub coming up for you before the end of the show from my list. And I've got a White Sox player coming up next. And we'll also
0: celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with hot buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at 250 dollars Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns and Foster, Temper Purple, and Beauty Rest Black, with 60 month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required, minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax and del- Delivery may be required. See store for details.
2: Selling a little or a lot.
3: Talk about the ugly White Sox story from the pitching perspective and what it actually means since we got some data on it yesterday. Spieg's with you on Hit and Run till noon on The Score. The premier baseball show in Chicago, Hit and Run with Matt Spiegel.
5: Trent Grisham will get into the left-handed batter's box to face Clevenger. Trent, 5 out of 23 with a homer and a double, testing out a little bit of a new approach at the plate. Ball at two strikes. Here's the pitch. And Trent swings and misses. Strike three. Well, fade away. Maybe a changeup from the left-handed hitter. Mostly off-speed
6: in that at-bat. at bat.
5: That's Trent Grisham out.
6: What was it like to see some of your teammates
5: as well? It was good. I feel like that was actually kind of comforting for my first time back out on the mound to kind of have you know some guys that you know I've all went through went to war with that uh, has been supporting me and you know it's good to see them again. Good to see their faces. And good to get them in the box.
3: That's uh, Mike Clevenger talking about his first start uh, in the spring. And there he was yesterday. And that was a strikeout of Trent Grisham, a former teammate in San Diego. Clevenger is now locked and loaded and uh, will not be facing punishment from MLB and will be a White Sox starting pitcher. I want to say fifth starter. Um, because that was certainly the thought process, but he theoretically does have the stuff historically to be thought of a little bit higher. We'll see how often he can uh, he can start and be available and how many starts he can make. You want a lot of starts out of Mike Clevenger. That's why you got him. it's why you paid him $12 million. He's got a six-pitch mix, uh, mix, does Clevenger. Throws the four-seam fastball the most. He does not really throw the two-seam, or he does throw a sinker a little bit, but four-seam fastball about 36% of the time. Then there's a slider. Uh, then there is that sinker, the cutter. So all three of those around the 15 to 20% rate. There's a little bit of a change-up in there, a very occasional curveball in there. And in terms of velocity, his, uh, his average fastball velocity Twenty eighth percentile, twenty eighth percentile last year in MLB, which is not very good. Now he's coming off an injury, coming off the second Tommy John. He's more than a year removed, so this should theoretically be a time and a moment when he steps back in. Let's hear Clevenger talk about mm, his pitching. He said that he feels like he can use all of his capabilities this year with the White Sox.
5: You like the way uh, your stuff is working today? It's, you got punch outs, right? So. Yeah, yeah. No, Metro. Yeah, stuff. So, so. That was really good. Yeah. Now it's just about a uh, sequencing and getting more uh, reps. Yeah. How does it feel to feel the way you do it physically now after everything you've been doing the last year and a half or so? I mean, it's a it's a relief. It's a relief to go out there and just like pitch when just you know feel like I can explode and feel like I can kind of use a hundred percent of my capability versus kind of feeling like I have a governor on and kind of feeling like I'm you know pitch with one leg tied behind my back yeah. <laughs> instead of one yeah. arm. But yeah, so was, it's awesome. It's a lot more fun. I'll tell you that.
3: So Clevenger's one of those guys, um, and I don't know if anybody's ever not seen him pitch. I feel like there's going to be some White Sox fans, the first time they sit down to watch this guy pitch, they're going to be like, what the hell is going on with this guy? And you should be aware, because he's got to make big changes. This is a guy who sometimes would take a long time, so the pitch clock is an issue just in terms of time. But also in terms of the disengagement rule and just he is twitchy and very strange on the mound, like stepping left and right, kind of rocking back and forth. And when there's nobody on base, he does that a lot and kind of like leans back a little bit. And there might be a pause, a hitch in the giddy up, uh, which is a a way that I've always loved uh, pitchers to be described So visceral, isn't it? Where is the giddy-up and where is the hitch? Is that below the belt? Is that above the belt? I don't know. But anyway, Clevenger, weird and twitchy and strange to watch on the mound. And he's got to work on that with the new rules and the new focus. And he knows that.
5: It was, well, I mean, I kind of had to change the whole setup. So I was kind of used to face forward, but I kind of used to come to a stop. I would do my rocks, but then I would kind of step forward. So they were—they didn't want me doing the step forward before backwards. So I turned to the side, I guess, that, that kind of step, kind of allows that pause. But yeah. Kind of going off of that, do you know, notice anything about the pace of play? I mean, the games are flying right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, def- it's definitely a, a much faster game. and I, I think everybody notices now if there's, not, if there's not a pitch clock or you're around a game that doesn't have that going on. So it's a very noticeable difference, <laughs> especially talking to the, uh, the World the Baseball Classic guys.
3: <laughs> yeah, B- World Baseball Classic, no pitch clock, and it's been a palpable difference as uh, these games have been dominating my television yesterday and today. I am um, I'm not looking forward to, uh, to watching Mike Clevenger. I'll be honest with you. There's, um, there's, there's the feelings uh, about some of the stuff. Um, and then there's just, I've never, I've never really enjoyed watching him. It's kind of crazy how he is, but we'll, it, it, how he pitches and what it is as a watch. But we'll see what the results are. And we'll see if Sox fans um, can embrace him and embrace the experience if the results are there. Um, one guy the, the White Sox did embrace. Oh, that's the subject of uh, my player that we're going to bring you. Every day at 445, Parkins and Spiegel, I go one player further on my list of my 30 favorite ball players in Chicago with the last 30 baseball seasons. So you have to have played a fair amount within those 30 seasons, beginning in 1993. And I've had a lot of fun, and they are archived. I will share that link in a little bit. And I wanted you to get a chance to hear me talk about the guy who was number 17 on the list. Robin Robin Ventura. Ventura. I first became aware of him, Danny, in high school because Ventura had a hitting streak at Oklahoma State. Anybody remember how long the hitting streak was at Oklahoma State? Long. 58 games. Yeah, it's a long one. He beat DiMaggio. It's still the Division I record. Three-time All-American there. Led the nation in runs and RBI as a freshman at Oklahoma State. Hitting in the big leagues harder. He never hit better than 300 as a member of the White Sox. But in an eight-year stretch, years 3 through 10 of his career, the OPS dropped below 800 twice. Once it was 799, once it was 785. He hit over 285 times, hit 20 or more homers five times. He drove in 100 runs twice, more than 96 times. And he won five gold gloves while he was here. Became a fabulous defensive third baseman. Uh, this highlight precedes me in town, but it's Tanny's favorite of Robin's incredible 18 grand slams. This comes against Goose Gossage and the Texas Rangers in 1991.
1: On the last day of July.
3: That's pretty cool. Hawk and Wimpy going nuts, man. And here's the thing about his grand slams. He's tied with Willie McCovey for fifth at 18. Okay? He did it in 294 homers. McCovey has 18. In 521 homers. Eddie Murray has 19 in 504 homers. Manny Ramirez, 21 in 555 homers. Luke Gehrig, 23, 493 homers. And A-Rod, 25 in almost 700 homers. That's nuts to me that Ventura has that many grand so slams. So
4: 18 of his 294. Yeah. yeah. Not a huge career total. Good number, but not a huge one to have that many grand slams. That is crazy. Insane.
3: Uh, my first season in town, 93, tumultuous for Robin. Uh, for one thing... That's the year he got his head noogied by Nolan Ryan. Yeah. He was 20, yeah. 20 years older than him. Probably the thing he's most known for. <laughs> yeah, I know it's sad. Yeah. He hates that part of his legacy. I don't think he should. He attacked an all-time great, tried to hold his own. You know, he, yes. was, he was doing what he, what he thought was was right. Um, Taddy grabbed this from the Facing Nolan documentary about why Ventura did it. You'll hear the voices of Dave Winfield Roger Clemens, Pete Rose, Pudge Rodriguez, and Nolan Ryan himself.
1: The White Sox were actually in the American League West at that time. Had Bo Jackson, and the Rangers had had these battles with these guys. And so this one night, the White Sox said, if Nolan hits anybody tonight, whoever it is, you're going to go to the mound.
5: Well, there was a bounty on Nolan's head. If you get hit by Nolan and you don't charge the mound, it's going to cost you 500 bucks ventura happened to be the first one that day to get
2: hit when robin ventura went out there i just thought he wasn't quite serious he wasn't fully committed
1: (laughs) most guys who charged the out if you had a microphone on them you could hear him say grammy catcher grammy catcher i don't want to get out there
5: Before you could blink, no one had him like a a baby calf in a headlock. Grabbing like it was
4: grabbing a bull. I was right there, best seat in the house.
1: (laughs) When I went down, I was on the bottom of the pile and I was laying face first into the dirt. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. I couldn't breathe and I really truly thought that I was gonna pass out. Then all of a sudden this big arm came end of the pile and reached under my shoulder and pulled me out and it was bo jackson man that's great
3: he had no choice
4: 500 so he, so bucks. he did it for 500 bucks man and what, and, what, and, what do yeah,
7: you think? Teammate pressure well yeah, yeah. Well,
4: it was right but i, well, I to want,
7: avoid paying 500 bucks
4: right that's well, that's what i'm saying it was a 500 hundred dollar bounty so and, and teammate pressure like you said but i wonder what robin ventura would pay have not done it now, <laughs> given that it's the number one thing that people think about. You think it's 50 grand? Oh, God. Like, you know what I mean? You think it's 100x what he would have had to pay in the moment? Right
3: after that segment if of, not the, more. of the documentary airs, there's a little thing on the screen. Robin Ventura declined to be interviewed right. for this documentary. Yep, I'm sure he did. Oh, I'm sure that's he too did. Too bad. But that whole decade, man. It was Robin and Frank. He was Robin to Frank's Batman, obviously. The Big Hurt in Ventura. 97, I was a producer for McNeil and Boers. That spring training, Robin slid into home plate, got his cleat caught in the dirt, dislocated, and broke his ankle. It was freaking gruesome. And some people were like, he might never play again. He's out for the season. He busted his ass in rehab. He came back in late July. Just crazy that he was able to do that and had the game-winning hit. That night, um, the legacy was tarnished by the managerial stint he agreed to out of obligation and loyalty. His best quality as a manager was that, that five months when he wasn't Ozzie Guillen at the beginning of, of 2012. Oral Hershiser really liked Robin, though.
5: He is not a stranger any place in the world. He's a, he lights up a room.
3: Not a stranger any place in the world, Danny. i would be tiring. <laughs> I'd want to be a stranger
1: someplace. I like being stranger a lot of places. I know. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but he lit up a room. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf at the end of his playing career said Robin was deteriorating, and he let him leave in 99. He hit 301 with 32 homers and 120 RBIs for the Mets. Hmm. Finished sixth in MVP voting. He is the best third baseman in the history of the White Sox. Tops in his position all time in homers. RBIs and runs scored and was super fun to watch. Offense, I give him a nine. Defense, I'll give him an eight. Vibes, I give him a nine. Teammateship, uh, give him a nine. And memorable moments, uh, only a seven because he only made the playoffs that one time and he went four for 20 in the playoffs. But Robin Ventura, number 17 on the list. So, so fun to do these uh, all march long and we've got a few more to go number 14 will be on Parker and spiegel tomorrow afternoon at 4 45 some cubs stuff before we get out of here at the top of the hour because the cubs are indeed playing later on we'll give you that broadcast info and a couple of nuggets and you'll hear uh, a very very accomplished and in my mind underrated cub profiled in my top 30 next on the score I'm Tony Kornheiser, this is my show My friends come on, we talk about basketball now Golf and the metronome of your life Baseball,
7: whether it's opening day The big tournament or one
3: of the majors We have the best to preview it and break down just what happens Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts The premier baseball show in
1: Chicago Hit and run with Matt Spiegel one that's drill Deep left field, Trey Mancini, bye-bye
4: yeah, yeah, we've been yeah, playing really well lately, and um, like you said, it's spring training. But at the same time, you you know, if you're you're playing a baseball game. You want to win, so and it's always great to do that. So um, yeah, it's been great to see.
3: That's Trey Mancini, who I think he's going to have a big year as a Cub. Nice fit. With the ballpark, um, nice fit on the roster. And thankfully a guy who can move over and play some right field. It's hit and run here, Matt Spiegel, with you up until the top of the hour. A reminder that anytime we talk about the Cubs in spring training, it is sponsored by Sloan, official water efficiency partner of the Chicago Cubs. That's Cubs Spring Training on the Score. And Cubs Brewers coming up at two fifty-five PM today. That'll be the pregame. That is indeed Pat and Ron. Starting lineup for the Cubs tonight is, or today, is Nico Horner. Ian Happ in left. Dansby Swanson at short. Mancini is the DH. Cody Bellinger is in center. Eric Hosmer plays first. Patrick Wisdom in right field. Interesting. Nick Madrigal at third. Uh, Tucker Barnhart is the catcher, batting ninth. And Adrian Sampson is your starting pitcher. Um, Nick Madrigal is going to have a tough time making this team, although his particular skill set would work well off the bench. Like you need a single, you need contact in a big moment. Um, Nicky two strikes could come up and certainly make you that contact. So maybe he's got a shot and has looked decent enough at third base. I'm sadly realizing that. I think Christopher Morrell and Nelson Velasquez are probably going to start a triple A. And Morel, who I enjoyed so much, enjoyed the personality for so much. I just you know Ross talks about it today with Pat Mooney in the athletic and talks about, you know, Morel, it's not fair to certain guys to have them play once every eight or ten days and expect their swing to hold together. You add that to the fact that Zach McKinstry's out of options, and I think Edwin Rios is probably a lock to make this team, and David Bodie's had a good camp. I think um, using one of your options on Morel and having him go down to AAA is is likely. Um, before we get out of here, let's talk about one of the great third basemen in the history of the Cubs. Some would say the best. I still don't say quite the best, but pretty damn close. This man was at number twenty-one, I believe, or was it even higher? No, I think it was higher. It's number eighteen. On my list of the top 30 ballplayers from my 30 summers in Chicago, Aramis Ramirez. An all timer. Best trade in Cubs history is probably Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope for Scott Feldman yes. and Steve Clevenger. Yes. But a close second is the deadline deal in 2003 when the Pirates were cutting payroll and they dealt Kenny Lofton and Aramis Ramirez to the Cubs for infielder Jose Hernandez and a prospect named Bobby Hill. An old-fashioned fleecing by the Cubs. Down the stretch of 3 15 homers and 39 RBIs for Aramis Ramirez in 63 games that year, and he was terrific in the playoffs. A homer against the Braves in the first-round series win. Then he tore up the Marlins on the way to what surely seemed like it was going to be a World Series, Danny. In 2003. I remember. Uh, game four of the NLCS that season. A massively memorable moment for Aramis Ramirez. No score. Cubs have a great
1: chance. Bases loaded, one down. And the 2 2. Swinging a high fly ball, deep left field. Back goes Conine. Conine near the wall, looking up. That ball is a grand slam. It's a grand slam for Aramis Ramirez. Cubs lead four to nothing. Right. Down the left field line, towering home run, Cubs lead
5: 4-0 in the first. That's the third home run of the postseason for Ramirez. He's doubled his RBI output. This is not the same Dontrell Willis. We told you early that his stuff is short.
1: Cubs lead 4-0 first inning.
3: Man, that's good. Um, Three homers, seven ribbies. Uh, in that series for Aramis Ramirez. In the five seasons between 04 and 08, because you remember what happened, Danny. They went to the World Series. Remember Moises Alou made that catch of the yeah. pop up along foul territory? Yeah, exactly. I remember. That was a great time. Yeah. Uh, five seasons between 04 and 08, Aramis never hit less than 27 homers, never drove in fewer than 92 runs, never had an OPS or had an OPS over 900 four times. One season it was at 898. He never struck out even 100 times. He was usually in the 60s and never had less than 500 plate appearances. Amazing run. Four times he placed an MVP voting, twice in the top 10. A dependable slugger. He struggled with looking lazy. He looked apathetic. Fans got frustrated. Bob Brenly got frustrated, said some controversial stuff about him. Mark DeRosa was on the score last year, I think at some point, talked about how some players hurt themselves by how easy things come to them.
7: A lot of my tough conversations with guys or comments that would kind of maybe be approached as a little, you know, kind of upset somebody, I did in the shower. Because at no point do I think that two men are going to go after it right there when they're stark <laughs> naked with soap all over them. So I always felt like it was the perfect time to have a great conversation. I used to do it because I, I, I have a belief that Aramis Ramirez is one of the best players I ever played with. And I felt victim to it too. I mean, Alan Trammell called me out my first year in 07 for taking plays off. I can remember it. So I just, I remember with Aramis, I had such respect for how great a player he was and the ability to drive in runs and that when he occasionally would dog it, I knew what the fans, you could see the reaction of all the Wrigley faithful. And, and I would go to him. I'm like, man, these people, you know, these people pay to come see you. They're not coming to see me or Terrio or Mike Fontenot or Reed Johnson or whoever. They come to see you and, and you're you're better than that. I know you're better than that. I played against you since we were in Lynchburg. And he always took it like yeah, it was bad luck. It net, it was never met because Rammer knew I, I cared about him and and knew what got him going and knew what made him tick.
3: His career slash line in high leverage situations, Danny. 301, 360, 521. That's an OPS in high leverage situations in the clutch. Of 881, Damn. June 29th, 2007. Wrigley Field is packed. Cubs are playing the Brewers. Cubs had won six in a row. We're right around 500, but looking like a team that might be able to take off. Brewers had, still had a seven-and-a-half game lead in the Central. Aramis walked it off.
7: So well now a one-run ballgame. Last chance here. It's Ramirez. Fontenot still at first. The pitch to Aramis. There's a drive.
3: Deep left center.
1: Cubs win! They win it! Ramirez two-run shot! Oh, baby! Can
6: you believe it?
3: That might be my favorite Len Casper call ever. By the way, just just that's realizing a good one. that's damn good. Ramirez, um, there was just a, a great moment. Um, limited by injury for 2009 and 2010, but even his last year as a Cub was good. 306 batting average, 26 homers, 93 RBIs overall. Eight and a half seasons as a Cub. 239 homers, 806 RBI in the history of the franchise. He ranks third in slugging in the history of the franchise. Sixth in OPS, sixth in home runs, 12th in RBI. And is probably the second best third baseman in the history of the franchise next to Ron Santo, if not the first. Offense, I give him a 10. Defense, I give him a 7. There are a lot of errors. Vibes, I give him a 7. Teammateship, though, I'll give him a 9. And memorable moments, he gets a 9. So he adds up to 42, sits there at number 18 for the uh, top 30. Super fun to do this list. Join us Monday through Friday at 445 on and Spiegel to have it updated. Thanks so much to our guests today, Lance Brozdowski from the Marquee Sports Network, Chuck Garfine from NBC Sports Chicago, and Mike Ferrin from MLB Radio on Sirius. XM, who is calling the games today and tonight. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. CBS Sports Radio is next. Cubs broadcast at 2.55. It's Zach Zaidman and Ron Coomer. So not Pat Hughes. I apologize about that. But anyway, should be an an absolutely great day. And I'll be up watching USA Mexico tonight. Have a great rest of the weekend, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Hit and Run. Thank you, Sean Sears. Great job, as always.
7: Not at 02. He strikes out Otani.
1: Satoria has the Czech Republic dugout
0: going nuts.